Please take a Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 48, which in the Pew Bibles is found on, chapter, on page 609. We'll be looking this morning at chapter 47 and 48 of Isaiah. But we'll be reading this morning just from uh, verse 12 of chapter 48 to the end of the chapter. So page 609 and reading from verse 12. This is what God has written. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains, their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, free from, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when they led him through, through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock, he split the rock and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. This is God's word. Well, I do have your Bibles open uh, at Isaiah. Back in the year 410, after Alaric and the Vandals had sacked Rome, Augustine began writing his book, The City of God. He wrote this, Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God. I want to talk to you today about two cities and to ask to which city you have given your heart's first allegiance. One city is earthly and transient. The other is heavenly and permanent. One city is marked by pride and domination. The other by humility and service. 
One is the city of man, while the other is the city of God. These two chapters we're looking at this morning stand together, and their connecting thought of these chapters is this idea of the city, two communities of people. In chapter 47, the city is Babylon, the wicked city. In chapter 48, the city is Zion, which is called in verse 2 of 48, the holy city. That city of Babylon is doomed to destruction, but the city of God, Zion, is to last forever. Babylon represents the city of man. Zion represents the city of God. So let's break that down together. First of all, we look at the city of man. Uh, The virgin daughter of Babylon, as it's described there in chapter 47. There are many positive things you can say about Babylon as it's appeared in the book of Isaiah thus far. To begin with, it was Babylon that was raised up by God. It was uh, given her power and her influence by God. And what she did in the world in terms of any successes she had were due entirely to the providence of God. And that is true, of course, of every kingdom and every power throughout the history of the world. As Paul says in Romans, the powers that be are ordained by God. Or as Jesus said to Pilate, Rome's governor in Palestine, you would have no power unless it was given to you by God. So he recognized that all power and all authority and all dominion in the world has been given to the world by God. And throughout the prophecy of Isaiah, we have seen the Isaiah as he bit by bit, is uh, introducing the idea to the people of his day that in the long term, past Isaiah's own lifetime, there would arise a kingdom uh, from Babylon that would gain in strength and would be responsible for invading Palestine, demolishing Jerusalem, and deporting the people into exile. Isaiah describes her here as, in verse 5, the mistress of kingdoms. She would become a mighty empire. And God was going to raise up Babylon, particularly, to punish his own people for her perpetual idolatry. They had had a long-term history of despising the word of God and the law of God. And lying at this transition point... In the book, the prophet makes it quite clear that Babylon will take Judah into captivity, will destroy the holy city and the temple in Jerusalem. And all of this has been announced as God's plan and purpose to use Babylon as a rod against his own people. If you look at verse 6, I was angry with my people. And what did I do? Well, I profaned my heritage. I gave them, that is my people, into your, that is Babylon's, hands. Now we know that the reaction of the Jews to their exile in Babylon was initially to withdraw from the life of Babylon and to become a kind of ghetto within Babylon in which they just talked to one another and settled into a life of resistance to the 
to the society around them. And Jeremiah, you remember, writes a letter to the people there. They were urged to settle down, to take employment, to get jobs, to marry and have children and so on, build homes, because they were going to be there for a considerable period of time. They were in exile under the hand of God, and it wasn't going to end quickly. I think when they first went, they thought perhaps God would just do what God always did. He turned up, and He rescued them, and He brought them home. But He wasn't going to do that this time. This time, He was going to rid them of their idolatry once and for all. This time, He was going to bring His people to repentance. This time, He was going to make it clear that because you belong to His church in the world, that was not a get-out-of-jail-free card for the people of God. That he who announced earlier on in Isaiah that he is the one who creates, creates the very day of calamity. He creates evil, that is calamity, for the day of calamity will bring calamity down on his own church in order to rid his people of the idolatry that was gripping their hearts. But here in this chapter, God is addressing the people of Babylon itself. He describes her arrogance, you see. Although she was being used by God to punish God's people, nonetheless, as time passed, as her power grew, as she became more successful and wealthy and prosperous, an arrogance grips her spirit. Look at verse 7. You said, I shall be mistress forever. In other words, she thought she was there forever. Babylon thought that once she was in power, this was one kingdom that was not going to go the way of all earthly powers and kingdoms. And she was contemptuous. She was contemptuous of two realities. One, that God rules history because He determines it beforehand. And two, that God judges nations. He judges nations, not just individuals, but He judges nations in this period. God is in the business of judging nations. And there is a danger here in Babylon that faces any and every city, community, and country. It's a danger that faces every culture and every society. It is to believe your own press clippings. It is the perpetual folly of every ideology and every philosophy, every power, every politician, to think that their ideas and their influence will last forever. The God of Israel confronts Babylon. And in the Bible, Babylon becomes the classic biblical study in worldly power and arrogance. Look at verse 8. You lovers of pleasure, who sit securely, who say in your hearts, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit like a widow or know the loss of my children. In other words, here is Babylon believing its own success story, believing the biographies and the histories that are written about its rise to power and the extent of its power and the range of its authority. Here is Babylon congratulating itself, patting itself on the back, trying to think, say to itself, you are self-existent, self-sufficient. You need nobody else you have it all. You have it now. This is your best life now, Babylon. And do you notice in the language that Babylon uses of itself that there is an inherent blasphemy in its claim? 
Already in the previous chapter, the Lord God of Israel has said, I am, and there is no one besides me. It is of the nature of the revealed God of the Bible that he stands alone, self-sufficient, self-existent, without need of anybody or anything that has ever been made. He stands alone, isolated, unique, the only one there is, the only God there is. And here is little Babylon, you see, in its power, thinking to itself that it has taken on a kind of godlike authority over the hearts and minds of people. And in the process, I want you to notice in verse 6 that she has begun to persecute the people of God, the believing people of God. I gave them into your hands, God says to her, and you showed them no mercy. On the aged, you placed a yoke. You made a yoke exceedingly heavy. She had persecuted the people of God. She boasts, verse 10, in her wisdom and knowledge. Babylon is full of wisdom and knowledge. She had developed her technologies. She had developed her techniques. She had developed her philosophy. She had even developed her religion that suited her. Astrology was one of the great religions of Babylon, and astrology gave her a sense of power, thinking that she knew the future. She knew how things would unfold in the future. But as her wisdom and knowledge grew, her understanding that there was a moral component to that knowledge seemed to vanish before her mind. Look at verse 10. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, but you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Do you see the inherent blasphemy and arrogance of Babylon, thinking she is invisible, invincible, thinking she is a substitute God? You see that twofold repetition, verse 8, verse 10, I am, and there is no one besides me. Now, this Babylon in the Bible is not only an ancient city, but increasingly in Isaiah and later in the Bible, she becomes a symbol. The historical Babylon of the 6th century BC was only one historical manifestation of another city, another community, another society and culture, organized against God, the city of man. The Bible word, the New Testament word, is the word world. Whenever Jesus uses that word world, especially in John's gospel, he is describing everything in our culture, in our society, in our global village, everybody and everything that is organized without reference to God that thinks it stands independent of and in opposition to the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. Now, that's not to say that everything in the world is bad. There are inventions and technologies, songs and stories, plays and movies, food and drink, positions and possessions, pastimes and pleasures, which the believer may receive with thanksgiving and enjoy to the fullest. In fact, there's a good reason why we should even cultivate many of the tastes and trends and even contribute by creating new tastes and trends 
in the world. In fact, the best things of the world will be taken by the saints into the new Jerusalem, we're told, in the book of Revelation. But there is a dark side to the world, and it's represented by Babylon. The Apostle John puts it like this, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, and the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. As we read this chapter with our New Testament spectacles on, we go to the book of Revelation where the same John is describing Mystery Babylon the Great. Describes this city, the daughter of Babylon, the virgin daughter of Babylon, the daughter of the Chaldeans, verse 1, as a great prostitute seated on many waters. What are these many waters? John goes on to explain these represent peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. She is arrayed in purple and scarlet. She wears the best clothes, adorned with jewels and gold and pearls. She has a golden hand, a cup in her hand full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. Babylon, the world system, is wealthy, influential, the source of every open and covert expression of defiance against the rule of God. John describes it in Revelation 18. The nations have drunk the wine of her passion. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the world have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Here, as we read the story of Babylon in its description, we find the story of our society. We find the story of the world outside the church. We find the story of American culture and British culture and the world culture in which we live today, a world system organized in opposition to the things of God. One of the hallmarks of that world system is captured here in the persecution of the people of God here in chapter 47, echoed by the Apostle John in Revelation 17 and verse 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now we need to read Isaiah 47 and learn the lesson that God is speaking to these people. He's saying, He's saying to this great city that its end is near, that she will become wearied with her counsels, the counsels of her counselors, because the more they say, the less they achieve. The more reassurance they give, the more their reassurances don't stack up. They will end up like stubble that the fire consumes. They will find no coal to warm themselves. All their businesses will fail. They'll wander around directionless. That's verses 14, 15. Babylon was going to fall. The mistress of the nations will sit in the dust, he says. The wealthy city will become a slave, he says. She will become widowed and bereaved. The evil witch will realize that her spells don't work and that her magic cannot save her. 
Her great house is built on sand. She displays her displays of strength and might are an illusion. Her sense of impregnability is completely ill-founded. Now there is a warning here. There's a warning in this text, which is a warning not just to this house of people this morning. It is a warning to the president of this country. It's a warning to the mayor of this city. It's a warning to every prime minister and every president of every country in the world. And it's a warning of this. There is only one God. There is only one God who has revealed himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You play around with that God at your peril. Everything on which you are building your systems is one day going to implode. All your acquired knowledge will not only be laughed at in a hundred years' time by people if they're here, all of that acquired knowledge will in the end bite the dust. All of your arrogant posturing, all of your rewriting of the moral laws of God that were first written in the consciences of boys and girls and men and women, all of that you will have to give an account of to God. If the church has anything to say to the Senate, that is what the church has to say to the Senate. The mass murder of babies is noted by God. This is a warning to the world that that Isaiah is giving us here. Babylon will fall. Here's how it's put in Revelation chapter 18. The kings of the earth who lived in luxury, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. The merchants who did their business with her shall weep and mourn for her since nobody buys her cargo anymore. The shipmasters, the seafaring men, the sailors, those who are involved in transportation and so on of goods and services, they will stand afar off in fear of her torment and say, Whoa, whoa, alas! Alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. That is the end of the world. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. The city of man. But you contrast that wicked city under the judgment of God with this city described in verse 2 of chapter 48. It's described as the holy city. And I agree with those scholars who say that by using this expression and not the name Jerusalem or Zion at this point, uh, when he uses this expression, the holy city, Uh, The symbolic use of Zion is kicking in here. Throughout the book of Isaiah, there's been a developing theme. Jerusalem, the city, is increasingly described as Zion. And Zion is increasingly described as the ultimate city of God, the city, the heavenly city of God, the place where God dwells, not simply temporarily in a temple, but rather dwells intensely 
the heaven that is his home, if you will. The city where he is with his angels and archangels and with the spirits of redeemed men and women. The heavenly Zion. Increasingly in the book of Isaiah, there has been this transition. It is to this heavenly Zion that in chapter 2, the peoples of the world come seeking the way of salvation and finding the way of salvation. Back in chapter 46, 13, we have a, gl a glimpse of that city. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. That's the place, the pivot, where salvation comes. It is from Zion the word of God goes out into all the world. It is in Zion that we have our citizenship as the people of God. And when he calls it the holy city, he does so quite deliberately here to elevate our minds, to make us think of that heavenly Zion. But he does it for another reason. He is addressing from his position in time far into the future, the people who will find themselves in Babylon. And as he addresses this prophetic word to these people, he is calling them up short. Zion, the city of God, is a holy city, but they are an unholy people. The very people, do you notice? The very people who should know better. The very people who stand and recite their creed in church. These people, look at verse 1. Who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel. But not in truth or right. He's addressing people who belong to the visible community of professing Christianity or believers. He's addressing that external community of Israel. But it's largely unregenerate. It's largely unconverted. And he's addressing these people. Look at verse 4 and verse 8. I know that you're obstinate, verse 4. I knew that you, would be, that you would surely deal treacherously, that from before birth you were a rebel. And you begin to read this and you think, who is he speaking to here? Is he speaking to Babylon? No, he is speaking, look at verse 1, to the house of Jacob. Here, God is addressing his people. God always speaks to his people. He challenges his people. His word is always at the heart of his people's corporate life when he calls on them to assemble. Verse 12, listen to me. Or verse 14, assemble all of you. That is all of my people. Here is the church in assembly. Here are the people of God who are called together as the church to hear from their God. He is speaking to the visible church. Here we have something very similar to what we read in Revelation 2 and 3, where the Lord Jesus addresses the church. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. You see, there's a church and there's the church. There is the outward society of those who profess the name of Jesus, and there are those who really know Jesus. And stubbornness is at the heart of these people. What is the problem? And why the connection with chapter 47? Here is the answer. God is addressing his people in Babylon. 
And he's addressing the Babylon that is in the hearts of his people. They have absorbed the culture of Babylon. They are idolaters like the people of Babylon. They are caught up in what the Babylonian world is caught up in. I want to give you one provocative illustration. You take the cult of celebrity. Last weekend, we were told a rock star was visiting Philadelphia. And I, frankly, am horrified that some people who profess the name of Jesus went along for the show. And came away thinking, what a great man he is. What a nice chap he is. That's totally irrelevant. He may be a very good man. That's not the issue, is it? Ever. This is a man who says he represents Jesus and wouldn't even mention Jesus' name when he was addressing the Senate. Who, when given the opportunity, didn't even stand up for those millions of unborn children that are slaughtered. And who says that anybody, whether they're Christian or not, can get into that heavenly Zion. The universalism of Catholicism since Vatican II is more or less complete except in certain pockets of conservatism within the church. There was nothing to rejoice in in that. That was mere celebrity. It was being carried along with the crowd of excitement. He might as well have been a rock star. And that's the way it is. That's a kind of mega picture of what is happening all the time. The church gets caught up in the atmospherics and hysterics of the world. And these people to whom Isaiah is addressing, speaking in chapter 48, are such people. If you can remember, this is sermon number 54. You've been, you've been really persevering so far. But if you can even remember the first part of Isaiah, where from 7 to 39, the big question to the people of God was, will you trust God? It's now underlined in this second part. First of all, it was addressed to the Assyrian crisis. Will you trust God? Now Isaiah is addressing, as he looks forward in time, to the Babylonian crisis. He says, now, there in Babylon will you trust God. Will you trust God? And will you trust God alone? Will you for once and for all give up your meshing and mixing up what you believe with what the world believes? And will you distinguish in your head between what you believe as a believer and what the world feeds you you should believe? Or will you adopt the world's values and try and Christianize them? The world's goals and Christianize them? Is, is that what it's all about? It's a challenge, you see. As God speaks to these people, he he tells them that he has spoken. They've heard stuff. He, he has never kept it a secret. He's declared it. Uh, he, he, he has told them again and again what he was going to do when he, when he was going to do a new thing. Now he's going to do a new thing. He's going to bring them back to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, when they come back, he's going to do something brand new. He's going to send the Messiah. Eventually, he's going to send the Messiah. He's going to bring about the salvation of Jews and Gentiles. Isaiah's been talking about that. That's the mystery. That's one of the secret things that God has been slowly revealing and would be understood once the Messiah came into the world. 
He had held back his anger. And he'd been gracious to them. God had spoken and now he speaks again. Look at verse 6. You have heard, now see this. Why don't you talk about it? Why don't you declare it? I'm going to send Cyrus. Cyrus is going to open the door for you to go back to Palestine. But when you get back to Palestine, it's not going to be the way you thought it was. You, you thought we'll go back there and life will resume. We'll get our city back and our temple back and our lands back. And if only we were back there and had all of those things, then, well, then we could serve God. You know, then we would be very happily serving God, worshiping God, doing what God wants us to do. But you're going to go back there? And there'll be no temple, and there'll be no city, and there'll be no lands. They're all burned. And no people. You'll be going starting from scratch again. Will you believe me when you go back into that situation? Do you need to have the props? Or do you believe God for what he says? Why is it that God judges his people? Why is it that God holds back his judgment from his people? ungrateful though they may be. Look at verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it. For now that I may not cut you off altogether. That's what I should do, but I'm not going to do that. For my own sake, verse 11. For my own sake, I do it. My glory, I will not give to another. He's saying to these people, I've been doing this. You're in Babylon because I want to refine you and discipline you. I want you to learn from this. To give up all your small ambitions, to give up over all your idols, so that you trust in the Lord alone with clear thinking. This chapter is full of a warning to people who have been given so much. You notice God's great promise to them. You know, He says, if you'd only paid attention, verse 18, to my commandments then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. You don't have any peace in your heart. Why? Because, verse 22, there is no peace, says says the Lord, for the wicked. The wicked there are not the wicked Babylonians. They're the wicked people who belong to the church, to, to Israel. There is no peace. That is peace of mind, peace of heart. Peace with God. Why is it that you're at war with yourself? Why this dis-ease among the people of God? Well, here it is. If you'd paid attention to my words, if you paid attention to my commandments, I gave you my word. The chapter leaves us really with a question. What is going to happen? Actually, These two chapters leave us with this fundamental conundrum. What is going to help the people of Babylon to find a right relationship with God? And and what is going to help these people of Judah, these Jews in Babylon, to find a right relationship with God? Since whether it's the unbelieving Babylonians or the professing to believe Jews in Babylon, both of them, in their own ways, are rebelling against God. What is the solution? Well, we'll see that next week. (laughs) But we have a clue in the text because we hear another voice speaking in verse 12. 
A voice that says, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Well, who is this one? This is the Lord, isn't it? This is the Lord God. He calls to the people. He calls to his church to assemble. Assemble, all of you, and and listen. Who among you has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. His arm shall be against the Chaldeans, a reference to Cyrus, the king of Persia, who would rise up 150 years later. God says, I'm responsible for him. I've spoken, called him, brought him, and will prosper him. Now he's talking to the people. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I've not spoken in secret. Since the very beginning, I have revealed myself to my people. I have given them my word. Moses is the great speaker of the word of God to the people of God. And from the time it came to be, I have been there. Well, who is this speaking? Well, it's the Lord God, isn't it? It's the Lord God of Israel. But I want you to notice what it says at the end of verse 16. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So what do you have in these verses? You have the Lord God who sent this person. Who is this person? He says, I am he, I am first, I am last. My hand laid the foundation. Who says that? But the Lord God. And who is the Spirit in Isaiah? The Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord. You see, we got the Trinity from the Old Testament. The early churches, the early church, read the Old Testament. And they heard these voices. Who are these voices? Who is speaking here? Here is the Lord God who claims all the attributes of deity. Speaking about the Lord God who sent him and the Spirit. Who is this one? Now the answer has already been given earlier in Isaiah and is given in a fleshed out amplified way in chapter 49. This is this figure this Davidic kingly figure who comes as the servant of the Lord. This is the Messiah, the Son of God, who shares the very same nature as God, who comes to be our salvation. Look at what it says in verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Here he's speaking again. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go, oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river. This this one who is coming is the one who has all the time been speaking, who appeared to Isaiah in chapter 6 in the temple, speaks to him the word of God, who appears to Moses in the burning bush and speaks to him the word of God. He has always been there, the second person of the Trinity. And 
in Jesus, he takes on human flesh and comes among us to be our Savior. What is God's purpose through this chapter? It is this. His purpose is to state his goal of a restored and transformed latter-day Israel. He is not, when he says to them in verse 20, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy. He is not just saying to those people in the future, when you get the chance, leave Babylon. He is saying to those people in the future, leave Babylon behind in your heart. Leave it behind. Let it go. Let get Babylon out of your system. Not just physically walk the road from Babylon to Jerusalem, but will you flee Babylon behind and leave it behind? All that it represents. There's a proper separation, isn't there? A proper separation from the world. I think some of us are afraid of that word because we remember times when that separation was expressed in very infantile ways. You weren't to, you, you know, you weren't to wear the fashions of the world. Uh, you were to, you know, just dr- dress like a frump or something. Oh, heavens above, don't do that. I mean, the rest of us have to look at you. But seriously, I'm glad that we've gotten beyond that. But there is a proper leaving of the world. It's values. It's ambitions. It's masters. It's heroes. And the way we leave the world is to run to the Lord who has redeemed his servant, Jacob, the same Lord who led the children of Israel through the desert and will lead us on to our everlasting kingdom. There is no peace, it says, for the wicked. But there is peace for those who listen, who gather, who heed, and who follow the servant of the Lord. That is the Lord Jesus. There is peace for those people. That's the message of Isaiah. And when we have peace with God, it may be possible at times to lose our peace of mind when we become caught up in the affairs and circumstances of the world. But the solution to that is not to avoid the Word of God, it's to come back to the Word of God. It's to listen. It's to assemble and listen. And it's to hear what God says in the language of Revelation. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now only you know your own heart. I urge you, knowing your own heart, to see those places where you're so compromised with the world that to lose that connection would destroy you. I I think we should enjoy everything the world has to offer with an open hand so that if it's snatched away, we don't miss it. Because our other hand is in the hand of the Master. Let's pray together. Lord, may your word be like a fire burning in our burning in our bellies, be like a flame in our hearts. May it illumine our minds. May it turn and change our will. And may you be given glory.
Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.